Right, the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Last week we introduced the commission, and today I want to take a look at two other aspects that are important for us as we begin to go through this. Next week, Lord willing, we'll actually start going through this commission. And that is, when was this commission given? and to whom it's given? Those are two very, very important questions for us to understand. So let's begin reading Matthew 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We had mentioned last week that when I refer to this commission, you may even have a translation of the Bible that has above verses 16 through 20, the title, The Great Commission. I'm not really referring to it as the Great Commission because... It's really not, as it were, the preeminent command, but it does do something for us, and that is it gives a summarization of the means by which we are to carry out God's eternal purpose. And so when I refer to it, and I may slip up, I am referring to it as the commission. So again, if you're taking notes or you're really wanting to get this down, The commission is the means by which God's eternal purpose, that is the mystery of His will, as given in Ephesians 1, is fulfilled in every generation. This commission is not given to individuals. No individual could fulfill the Great Commission. We have even inherent within the Great Commission the word baptizing, We have learned through the years, very early age for many of us, that baptism is an ordinance of what? The local church. It's not the ordinance for an individual. In other words, the Bible doesn't commission you as an individual. Say you lead your neighbor to the Lord to bring him over to your bathtub and for you to baptize him, or to baptize him outside in his pool in the backyard. This is a local New Testament ordinance. And only a local New Testament church can truly fulfill the Great Commission. And again, it is the means by which God's eternal purpose is fulfilled in every generation. Our approach to this book is to recognize that it is, we believe, the first written witness to the gospel among the churches, and therefore, because it was the first, it's commonly understood that it was the most widely read in the early church. So when we approach this passage, first of all, we want to approach the passage Firstly, through the original hearers of this passage. They would not have had the other books of the New Testament. They would not have had Mark, Luke, or John. And yet, we need to understand that whatever conclusions that we come to, looking at it firstly through the book of Matthew, it would not contradict any other book of the New Testament. Why? Because it is God what? God breathe. It's inspired of God. The other books of inspiration would not contradict another book of inspiration from the Lord. And a a unique aspect of this book 
is that it is written around five discourses of Christ. And we saw that the primary hearers, if you go and look at the context of those discourses, the primary hearers of these five discourses were, do we remember, they were the disciples. And that teaches us something, that as we read this book of Matthew, we should be reading it as a disciple. And so this is important when we come to the Lord's commission because in verse 19, he gives the command for us to go and do what? Make disciples. What would a disciple look like according to the apostle Matthew? Well, it would look like a a learner follower of those five discourses. Beginning with the Sermon on the Mount, all the way down to the discourse concerning the second coming. In between those five discourses are narrative. And those narratives, in general, show us his authority. And of course, you remember, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people who heard him teach that discourse said, He doesn't speak like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's speaking as one who has authority. And so here is this authority that is being magnified for us. And when we look at that, we see preeminently, even within this commission in verse 18, we have this, all authority is given. So as you read through the book of Matthew, by the time you get to Matthew chapter 18, you ought to have a growing, maturing persuasion that Jesus is and has all authority. All authority on earth. And you see narratives that show that. Did he calm the storm? Okay, for example, he has all authority in heaven. He even commands spiritual beings, does he not? And so we have this authority being magnified, and then we have in the discourses, as I mentioned, to make disciples. So really, the framework of this whole book really comes to an apex and a conclusion with this commission that is given to the apostles. It begins in Matthew with this phrase, Emmanuel, God with us. Does God have all authority? Yes. Well, this God who is with us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ as a man, he too has all authority as God in human flesh. Those are tremendous things that we really need to give our minds and meditation to. So as I mentioned, I want to consider two things. First of all, the timing of the commission. And then secondly, for whom is this commission? First of all, the timing. When we look at the timing of this commission, we first of all have to recognize that we cannot be conclusively sure about the order of the appearances of Jesus Christ post his death and burial. There is diversity of opinion on that. And I've really given probably too much time in my preparation over the last 8 to 12 weeks for this series really given too much time trying to figure out what that order is. But we do have a framework of this order. And I want to give to you that framework. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 says, and I'm quoting, that Christ appeared to the apostles alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period, do you recall this number? 
over 40 days. Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So we have the length of His post-resurrection appearances, and we have the content in general of what He's communicating to those apostles during those 40 days. Now, in those 40 days, the recorded appearances of Jesus Christ, of which there are 12 in the books of the Gospel, they all appear within two geographical regions. The first geographical region is at Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. And the second geographical region is in the region of Galilee. And of course you know that those appearances begin on the Lord's Day, on that very first day. He's buried right outside the city of Jerusalem. And of course he makes his appearance. And in the book of Matthew, you'll notice in verse 7 of this chapter, that Jesus told the women, he said, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going ahead of you into what region? Galilee. And so go and tell them to meet him there. Jesus appears again to them, and in verse 10 he says, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. So we have two geographical regions in which we have his appearances as given in the books of the gospel. Jerusalem and Galilee. And as best as I'm comfortable with, it happens in this order. First of all, it happens on the Lord's Day at Jerusalem. What happens on that day? Well, Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb. Then after Mary, there are other women on the road in which Jesus and the angels appear to, and that's recorded here in the book of Matthew. Then there is an appearance to Peter. We're fairly confident that that appearance would have happened on that same day, probably in the afternoon sometime. Fourthly, there is an appearance on that Lord's Day to two disciples traveling to Emmaus. And of course we have that given in the book of Mark and in the book of Luke, expanded. And then we have, on that same Lord's Day, we have the disciples gathered in the afternoon, and Jesus appears to the gathered disciples. And of course, there would have been more there than just the eleven, how many we don't know. So on that Lord's Day, we have five overwhelmingly proofs, convincing proofs, that this man Jesus died on that cross and was buried and God resurrected him from the dead and accepted his bodily atonement for his people. What a gift that is. Five of the twelve happened on what day? On the Lord's Day. Then there's a six showing, and that happened eight days later, and we take that to be inclusively. And if that's the case, it would have happened on the next week's Lord's Day. So you have a Sunday, and then you have the intervening days, and then you have another Sunday, another Lord's Day, And on that Lord's Day, he appears again to the gathered disciples. And that's recorded in Mark and John and mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then we have 40 days later at Jerusalem. 
or around in that region of Jerusalem, we have the disciples gathered and they watch Him ascend into a cloud into the heavens. And of course, that's given to us. <clears throat> it's mentioned in Mark. It's mentioned in Luke. And of course, it's really detailed in the book of Acts, chapter 1. And it's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. So there's the appearances as are given in the region of Jerusalem. In between that second Lord's Day and the 40th day in which He ascended, there are four appearances in the region of Galilee. And folks, remember that when we read like Jesus, He went fishing. You remember that? Where is He fishing? He's fishing in the Sea of Galilee, right? Well, He's not there because He's forsaken His calling. He's there. Why? Because Jesus told them to go to Galilee. So where would you go? Well, you would go back home to Capernaum. You would go back home to your area. And in between the instruction that is going on, would it not be natural as fishermen to take their boats out? It would be. And while they did that, the Lord gave them a more fuller persuasion of their calling while they were out there. So what went on in these 30 days in the region of Galilee? Well, I've already mentioned, first of all, I think the next appearance would have been the seven disciples they go fishing. And of course, that is in the book of John. After we have that event, I think the next event is this commission. So they are at the region of Galilee, and perhaps, we're not sure about this, but did you notice in verse 16 that the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the what? Mountain. Mountains are very important in the book of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount, you have, for instance, the Mount of Transfiguration. Mountains are very important in the book of Matthew, and we're not sure why, other than some conjecture, which I think is scripturally valid. Where did Moses receive the Old Testament covenant? On a what? On a mount. In other words, he received authoritative teaching on a mount. And what we find is that every time he goes to a mount, there is some form of authoritative revelation that comes from him being on that mount. So as it were, we could conjecture that he is presenting himself as the second Moses. Right? You remember Moses said, there's going to come a prophet after me, and him you better what? You better listen to. Here is this man. So we have the seven disciples fishing. We have the eleven apostles here at the commission. And then after this, and I used to think these two things were one. I'm not convinced of that anymore. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that he appeared to over 500 there in the region of Galilee. Then fourthly, in the region of Galilee, we have an appearance to James, the Lord's brother. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7 mentions an appearance to James. And so we have an appearance to a couple of single people. We have Mary Magdalene, right, there at the tomb. We have Peter. And then we have who? We have James that the Lord appeared to. And then, of course, <clears throat> to conclude it all, you have the ascension on the 40 days. So all of that <clears throat> comprises 12 appearances 
The interesting thing of that is only two of those are mentioned in Matthew. Is this all the appearances? Probably not. Well, you know the answer to that is no. Because last of all, he appeared to another individual. And that was Saul on the road to Damascus. And Saul was converted. And Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15 that that appearance was an unusual appearance. Why was it unusual? Because it was outside of this 40-day window by which Jesus gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. And we have recorded, of course, Paul saw the Lord more frequently, or at least I could say this, he heard His voice more frequently there during His ministry. But we have two recorded appearances on the road to Damascus, and then we have a recorded appearance when he was at Jerusalem when they captured him and put him in prison, and the Lord said to him, don't fear. You're going to go to what city? You're going to go to Rome. And so, outside of that, so we have 12 appearances to the 11 apostles and others, and we have two appearances outside of that, and that's all the appearances that will ever be until when? His second coming, until He comes. And so when people tell you that they've seen the Lord, you know that they have not seen the Lord. They've seen something, but it wasn't Him. And I've given this illustration before. Years ago, I was <clears throat> out witnessing in the back hills of Tennessee, and I ran across a man and was giving him the gospel, and he said, oh, he said, I'm saved. He said, I've seen Jesus. I've seen him many times. And I said, oh, really? It's really fascinating. I said, what did he look like? And he said, he looked like that picture that he had hanging on the wall. Well, that picture was very Caucasian and very American looking. So, you know, outside of it being Caucasian and not Middle Eastern, and outside of the fact that it looked like an American and not a Jew, uh, and outside of the fact of the Bible, I had to tell the man that, yes, he may have seen that, but it wasn't the Lord. And come to find out that he had most of his appearances while he had been drinking. And so, outside of that, outside of these 14 appearances, including the Apostle Paul, we have no other appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this appearance of the commission is given some, it would have been the seventh, if I got this right, no, it would have been the sixth occurrence, I think, of Jesus appearing to them. And of course, he appeared at this commission at Galilee. Now, a very, very important question that we have to answer is to whom was this commission given? And that is a lightly debated question today. It's not a debated question really among and in our circles. I would dare say that all of us, perhaps, when, they, when you have heard about the Great Commission, you either have assumed or has been taught to you that it was given to who? It was given to us as believers. And so we want to answer that question, is that really true? And folks, I think the Bible really helps us with this. The Bible is most definitive on this question. It does not leave us in the dark. Now, I don't want you to answer this out loud, but to whom was this commission given? Well, look at verse 16. Who proceeded to Galilee? 
The eleven what? Eleven disciples. Now look at verse 17. Who would be they? Who would be they? It would be the, the eleven disciples. In verse 18, who would have been the them? Look at your Bibles there. Verse 16, who proceeded to Galilee? Who's at the mountain? The eleven disciples. Who did Jesus speak to in verse... <clears throat> excuse me, who, who saw Jesus in verse 17? The eleven disciples. And who did Jesus speak to in verse 18? The them? It, it would have been the eleven disciples. Everybody see that? Okay? I, I think we could be very definitive about that. And if we asked ourselves, all right, who are the eleven disciples? Well, Matthew helps us with that. Go back to Matthew chapter 10. Because he delineates them very clearly here. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1. Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority... There's a word authority again, right? Over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, Anthodias, Simon the zealot, and we don't count the last one, why? Because he's not only dead, he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we talk about the eleven, we're talking about this list in Matthew chapter 10 verses 2 and 3. Except for who? Except for Judas. Well, if you take 12 and you're minus 1, I'm not trying to be demeaning, you get 11. So when Matthew writes in verse 16 of the commission, verses, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, this is who he's referring to. And it is they who saw him, it is those 11 who worshipped him, and is some of those 11 that were doubtful, and we'll look at that and try to discern what that means, and it is to those 11 that Jesus came up and spoke, and it's those 11 who heard, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's why I think that we can say it is definitively, in the context of this book, it's given to who? The eleven disciples. Well, before you wipe the sweat off your brow and think, good, that means we're free. <laughs> okay. We want to ask this question. If the Scripture <clears throat> and the context single out the eleven, do we, as a gathered people, do we have any warrant to take this commission unto ourselves? Do we have any warrant to give it a place as the means 
by which God's eternal purpose is accomplished. Because if there is no warrant, then God's eternal purpose was carried out by the means of the commission just among the eleven, but for us, we can just kind of have a committee meeting and get together and try to discern, well, okay, we know God's eternal purpose, but what's the means by which we're going to reach people? And there are those who take that position. I do think that the Bible gives us warrant to take this commission unto ourselves and to take this commission as the means. Not one mean above other, among other means, as the means by which God's eternal purpose and purposes are to be carried out. And I'm going to give you three <clears throat> reasons that I think are persuasive. Number one, <clears throat> The Messiah King, Jesus Christ, speaking to these eleven men, gave to them not only a command, He gave them a promise. That promise is given in verse 20, Behold, I am with you. Now who's the you in the context of Matthew? The eleven. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now I am sure, I'm not absolutely sure, but I am sure that when the, those eleven heard that, they were thinking that the end of the age would occur when? In their lifetime. Paul comes along and says that there is going to be such a thing as the church age. But still, this promise, even to the end of the age, if it isn't, if the end of the age isn't in their lifetime, but it extends further than that, then it does give us some warrant to think that this commission also extends further than their lifetime. Everybody see that? When Jesus Christ speaks to those eleven, He is speaking to them as a whole group. He's speaking to them as an embryonic church. The church had not yet been manifested until when? The day of Pentecost, which was after those 40 days. He's speaking to them as an embryonic church that's to be birthed or manifested to the world at Pentecost. And he is promising this embryonic gathering of 11 men to be with them even to the end of the age. So that's number one. I think the fact that he says even to the end of the age does speak to us that we can take this commission unto ourselves as a local New Testament church. That in and of itself may or may not be conclusive for you. Here's a second reason. And I think this reason's a little stronger. Matthew wrote this book of the Gospel. It is the earliest book of the Gospel. He recorded the commission. Why, why would he record something that was specifically for who? Them. He recorded the commission 
for successive generations to read, including the churches and believers that he had left behind as he first worked in the region of the Jews, and then later on he was sent to the he was sent to the Gentiles. <clears throat> Not only did he record the commission for succeeding generations, but in verse 20, he tells succeeding generations to teach the gathered believers, the gathered disciples, to observe all that I commanded you. Is this commission part of that command? The answer to that is yes. He wrote it down for succeeding generations. He included it, Matthew included it, the Lord included it, in Jesus' instructions to them. He said that we're to teach them, the gathered church, to observe all the things that He's commanded. And folks, not only that, Matthew included in his discourses a discourse to those disciples on how to conduct evangelistic commission. You remember when we turned to Matthew chapter 10? He's sending those disciples out ahead of him two cities to prepare the way for him. He gives them authority to preach. He gives them authority to heal. He gives them authority to cast out devils. He gives in Matthew chapter 10, now follow me, specific instructions that are only true for them but he also gives instruction that would be true for every generation of believing people, all in that chapter. And folks, did he record that? If he recorded it, and he recorded for us what to expect when we carry out a commission that what we're to expect when we carry out the commission is true for every generation, which implies that there's going to be a commission given that would be true for every succeeding generation. And folks, the early church, I think, I, I'm not even going to prove this, the early church carried out this commission. We not only have tradition of Matthew, we have an example in Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch sending out what we would say would be the first missionaries or the first messengers from that church into the Gentile world to carry the gospel forth. What did those messengers do? Did they go? Did they preach? They preached the gospel. When the gospel is preached and the gospel is received, what happens? It makes disciples. Those disciples were gathered into local New Testament assemblies and were they baptized as an evidence of their faith and discipleship? The answer to that is yes. And did they gather regularly to hear from the Lord through His messengers the Word of God? And were they to carry out all that Jesus commanded? The answer to that is what? The answer to that is yes. So we have that example given to us in the book of Acts, and we see it operating in local New Testament churches there in the epistles. People are reached, that's go. People are made disciples through the means of the preached gospel. Believers manifest their discipleship firstly by being baptized and becoming a member of local New Testament gatherings. And at those local New Testament gatherings, 
Believers are to be taught to observe everything that Jesus commanded. Everybody see that? Okay, so first of all, we have this promise, I am with you always, even in the end of the age, that implies that this commission is for succeeding generations. Secondly, we have the fact that Matthew recorded the commission and he gave the command to be teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded and the commission is part of that command. And we also see instruction on what to expect when we try to carry out that commission in the discourse in Matthew chapter 10. And thirdly, and I think this is definitive if you're not convinced about this yet, I hope that you will be after this. I said that Jesus looked at those 11 men as the embryonic group of messengers, the embryonic church that was to be manifested on the day of Pentecost. Those apostolic messengers, were they given, were those 11 men given authority by the commission? Yes or no? He has all authority and he gives them the authority to carry out this commission as the means for God's eternal purpose to be accomplished. All right, what did they then do? They have the authority. They're carrying this out. What did they then do? What they then did (laughs) was transmit to local New Testament churches what Jesus commanded. Everybody see that? So we have, he has all authority. Amen? That authority has been given to those 11 men and those 11 men as messengers of the one who has all authority transmitted that authority not to seceding popes, but to local New Testament assemblies, churches, to the body of Jesus Christ. Now, do I have that truth recorded anywhere? Or am I just conjecturing? Well, I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. You actually should have had this passage come to mind because we read it at least once every month. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here we have an example. Who's writing? Paul. Is he an authoritative messenger? Has he received authority from Christ? Yes, he is an apostle. He did go and reach people. He did make disciples through the preaching of the gospel. Did he gather together professing believers and baptize them? He did. He didn't always do it himself, but he did. And did he teach them? He did teach them. And he would have taught them all that Jesus commanded, plus he would have taught them the rest of the revelation that Jesus intended for the church to have. Now let's look at the passage. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Here we're talking about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. It says, For I received, who's the I? Paul, apostolic authority, right? For I received from who? The Lord, the one who has all authority. I received from the Lord that which 
I also delivered to who? The church at Corinth. The you there is plural. He's not speaking to individual believers. He's speaking to the church as a whole. And of course, what's true as the church as a whole filters down in, depending on the instructions for us to carry out in our lives. He gave to a local New Testament assembly this. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. There's a command. In the same way, He took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this. Here's a command. Here's another. As often as you drink it, plural, as often as the church gathers to do this, do this in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death because He's what? He's coming. You're proclaiming that He died, but He's alive. And that He's coming again. And it's given to a local New Testament church. So folks, here's an example of a command. From Jesus Christ, the one who has all authority, to an apostle, in context, it would have been given to him and him alone, who then delivered it, he transmitted it to local geographical churches. And of course, what is true for the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is also true for the ordinance of what? Baptism. Did Jesus say to baptize? And so folks, what we have here is not only the ordinance of the Lord's table and the ordinance of baptism, but we also have New Testament commands given from the all-authoritative Christ to 11 men. And those 11 men sought to see the commission fulfilled in planting New Testament churches. And the New Testament church, as it is true to the New Testament, carries the same authoritation in what it is preaching and teaching. When we teach and preach what the Lord commands, it is as if who is here? The risen Christ Himself was here. You don't have to have, as I've heard many times, someone once said to me, well, unless unless the Lord personally comes to me and convicts me, well, that, that would be like me saying to you, well, here's the commission, but the only way that we know that the commission is true is that if every individual New Testament church, the Lord personally convicted each one of us to do this. And you know that's absurd. If He commands us, It is a command for us to observe whether we're convicted or not about it. In fact, it would be much better not that you were convicted of this commission, but that you were persuaded of this commission. Everybody following me? Many people get convicted, they confess it, and they don't do it. What we want to do is to be fully persuaded that this commission, as Matthew recorded it, as the earliest book of the gospel, four succeeding generations, the one who's with us even to the end of the age has given it to us, and we are to be fully persuaded that that authority is fully invested in what the apostles wrote down. And when we preach and teach 
that authority, as it is understood within our Bibles, we are preaching and teaching with all the authority of the risen Christ himself, and so therefore we better what? We better observe it as a local New Testament assembly. So folks, when we ask the question, who was the commission given to, you can say dogmatically, the 11 disciples. If then you ask the question, does the church today have any warrant to take this commission to itself, each local New Testament assembly, to take that commission unto itself, as the means by which God's eternal purpose is to be carried out, I think the weight of the New Testament says the answer to that is yes. We have full warrant to take it unto ourselves, and not only do we have New Testament weight to do that, I think we must do that. Or we are forsaking the very means by which God is glorified in carrying out His eternal purpose. So therefore it is appropriate for local New Testament geographical churches to receive from the Lord through His apostles and their writing this commission. And again, I've noted that only a local New Testament church can carry this out. And of course, when you say that, then you have to understand that within that local New Testament church body, the risen Christ gives gifts to carry this out. And how many believers are gifted? Every believer is gifted for the ministry within that local New Testament church For instance, I am gifted, I believe, to be a pastor. My primary use of my gift is to teach you to observe. Is that part of the commission? Yes. I'm also to go and make disciples, and you're also to go and to make disciples. Gather them into our local New Testament assembly become a member of this local New Testament assembly, showing their discipleship by being baptized, and then regularly gathering with this assembly because it is here uniquely that Christ has promised through his messengers to teach us to observe all that he's commanded. And what that does is it makes what we're doing this morning and what we do this afternoon and what we do on a Wednesday night the most important thing on the globe at that given moment. Because this is the arena through which God is glorified. And of course you can look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and see that. Where's Jesus? He's in the midst of the... He's in the midst of the churches. That's where he's at. He's not at the Roman government. He's not off playing golf. He's right there in the midst of local New Testament assemblies. And folks, to the degree, and I do believe that we grow in this, I do believe that we mature in this. For example, Matthew went primarily to what region when he first preached? To the Jews. Was he not carrying out the commission? Because it says go into all the world? No, his primary giftedness at that time would have been the Jews. Paul's primary giftedness was to? Gentiles. Peter's primary giftedness was to the Jew. But then Matthew, I'm sure under the instruction of the Lord, after 15 years decides to go to the Gentiles. He, again, is fulfilling, being gifted, for that unique primary emphasis of his preaching and of his teaching. The authority of Christ 
was given to the apostles. The apostles' authority <clears throat> was delivered to the churches. We are only as authoritative as we adhere to what is written. That's the only authority a church has, is what it's written. And so therefore, when we ask this question, for whom is the commission? Well, it is for the eleven. But it is also for the body of Christ. That is the church. We've learned in our series on Ephesians, and I encourage you if you've not, or if you're listening and you're not exposed to that in your pilgrimage, we have a whole series on Ephesians. Just go and listen to Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Each New Testament church exists for God's eternal purpose to be fulfilled in it. The means of that being fulfilled is the commission. It is summarized in the commission. When that happens, our lamp brightens. Everybody hear that? We want to be a bright light, do we not? We don't want to be hid under a, a bushel. Christ doesn't light a lampstand to be hid. He lights it to be seen. And the means by which we do this and brighten our light and see the fruit of the Spirit happen in our life is through this authoritative commission functioning in a local New Testament assembly. So what do we do? Well, we try to reach people. We try to reach people with the gospel. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Right? Years and years ago, many years ago, 38 years ago, <laughs> I kept hearing, we need the power of God, we need the power of God. And so I decided I was going to look through my Bible and find out, well, how would I know if I had the power of God? And I read that verse. The gospel is the power of God. I read in Corinthians, preaching the gospel is the power of God. So we do have the power the question is, will we utilize the sword? That's the question. So people are reached. If the gospel is preached and the gospel is received properly, it makes people disciples. It makes them learner, teaching to observe all that I commanded, Follower of Jesus Christ. Learner followers are to be baptized by a local New Testament assembly, thereby joining that assembly so that they can be taught and grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. How do we bring glory to God as a church? How do we brighten our light? Well, we gather. You gathering today brightens the light. If we come to bow the knee of our heart to hear all that He has commanded, And if we bow the knee of our heart to observe what we have heard. And folks, that means that a church is not merely a spectator event. It's not something you go to to put in time. 
That sounds like prison. <laughs> a prison is a cell by which you go to bite out your time. It is an active working by the risen Christ in the midst of His people as they gather to work in them, to work through them the fruit of the Spirit, for them to energize and motivate them to be so persuaded about this gospel and its transformative power that they are willing to go out and tell other people about it. And when we do that, a church will bring glory to Him. So next Lord's Day, Lord willing, I will begin to try to do the work of building a full persuasion of His authority in your life. And may God grant us that. And may we approach this commission with these two introductory truths so that when we come to it, we're ready to hear it. And we're ready to what? To observe it with all our hearts. Let's pray.